Hi folks and welcome to Sparkles for Better Mental Health, Growth in Five Dimensions. I'm Dr. Christine Sauer, your host, and today I'm extremely happy to have Tonia Winninger on the show. Welcome, Tonia. Good morning or good afternoon. Well, thank you. <laughs> Whatever it is in your time zone, Tonia is a licensed professional counselor who is working with women who have experienced trauma. Now, Tonia, let me ask you, how did you get into that topic and why are you so passionate about it? I got into I, specifically trauma when I became licensed uh, just over 10 years ago that, you know, trauma just became so prevalent in women's lives, not just in this lifetime, but generationally. And working with women in crisis intervention, working with women with domestic violence uh, became so ingrained with how I want to help the world, because if we can stop passing on generational trauma to our children and grandchildren and for the future, then we can change the future. So we act now to change the future. And I focus on women. I mean, obviously, because I am one and because trauma is so personal to me. Uh, like many therapists and counselors and social workers, we go into this field because we have what's called lived experience. I have a lifetime of lived experience this time and going through school and really coming into touch with how that has shaped and affected how I work on day-to-day -day basis helped me determine where I want to go and who I want to help. I use neuro-linguistic programming to really help in force and break down those barriers that stop us from dealing with trauma and help us to get really real right in the moment with it so we can deal with it in a safe, sacred space and so that women can heal. Wow, I like that safe, sacred space. Now, let me ask you, what do you see most as a root cause of that trauma in women? It's it's multifold, right? Um, the if I were to pinpoint one and only one root cause, it would be the generational trauma and the generational programming that our mothers, grandmothers, and great grandmothers have received. That this is an expected thing that women are going to go through. We are just going to be traumatized. That would be the core root, right? After that, it would just it would be the patriarchal society that we have grown up in and, and known that contributes to the microaggressions, the macroaggressions, and, and the major traumas. So would you say that most women that are currently living have been suppressed as, as kids and have told to submit? Yes. Hmm. That's an easy answer. Yes. You know, and, and we're maybe being told to be nice and friendly. Mm-hmm. And I, smile, smile more. Always. Yes. Nothing against the smile. I love to smile. But if you have to fake it all the time, it can be very strenuous. And I know yeah. that my experience, probably you from yours and many of your clients. Exactly. Tell us about an example. A client that came to you and she suffered from being too nice. <laughs> 
I, I have hundreds of examples, not just working with the crisis line, just working, you know, in domestic violence and working, you know, as an individual therapist. I actually have a client right now that came to me as a referral in a domestically violent relationship told during the entire relationship, you know, the grooming process starts the very first time that they meet the, the abuser. Right. So especially when we're talking domestic violence and we're I'm going to use that word abuse because it is it's full on. Right. You know, told, oh, well, if you just smiled more, it'd be, you'd be pretty. Uh, yeah, if I smiled more, my face would hurt because it's fake and we don't do that. And over a 10 year time span, you just become this trophy wife who's like, oh, yeah, just it's OK. Mm. Smiles hide so much. I don't smile very often. And when I do, it's because it's a genuine like and appreciation and a genuine response that I give to somebody else. So it's, yeah, I like that. And you say about yourself that you're not nice. What do you mean by that? Oh, I, I love this. So yes, I, I introduce myself and I make sure on my first appointment, my clients really understand that I am not a nice person. I stopped being a nice person a while ago because nice people keep the status quo. Nice people will walk on eggshells to make sure that the eggshells don't break. They do not address the elephant in the room. They do things for other people at the expense of their own self. I'm not a nice person. You know, oh, why don't you just do this for me? No. And that's the greatest gift that I can give you. I am a kind person. Kind people acknowledge the elephant in the room. Kind people acknowledge there's broken eggshells here. And it does not matter if I tiptoe or if I sweep them off to the side, there are going to be repercussions. There's going to be consequences, some positive, some negative. There's going to be a reaction from this. Kind people give you the gift of saying no and do not explain themselves. So I like to make sure that when I'm working with a client, there are going to be things that I'm going to say because I am kind and I am not going to be nice about it. And, and I want them to be ready and willing to accept that and be able to tell me if they are able to or not. Because my kindness is not for everybody. Hmm, I like that. So what do you say to clients that come to you and say, but if you tell me no like that, it hurts my feelings. Okay, good. Let's dive into what feelings you have and what's going on. Talk to me about where no came from and what no means to you. Hmm. And what would the client say to that? What, what would you say? What, what does no mean to you? Oh, no means to me that it's just uh, your opinion that you can do it right now. And I have learned to respect it. But in my previous life, I would have said, said it, it's a rejection. Yes. She doesn't like me. She hates, she, she doesn't like me. No mm -hmm. means you don't like me. Yes. I'm working with, um, I'm working with two clients right now who have similar issues with boundaries with themselves, boundaries with friends, family, and then extended, you know, people that they know. No to them. No in their family meant ask 50 more times because then it'll turn into a yes. 
ask 17 more times because then they'll go, will you stop? There'll be an angry outburst. And now we have a victim role and we have a persecuted role. The persecuted role is usually the one that is antagonizing the, the victim. Um, and then the roles reverse so that the persecutor is actually now the victim. So we're looking at total, I'd say total, we're looking at classic power control differentials, right? You know, the bully is usually the one that gets pitied because the, the bully E attacks and retaliates, right? So, so no in their family never meant actual no. Mm. And, and uncovering that, you know, 50 years worth of when I say no, no meant ask 50 times. No means no. Their family is having a very difficult time. I'm going to say conniption fit. Their family is having a conniption fit dealing with them. You know, that's an interesting point because it reminds me, I'm 61 when I was a child. Uh, you talked about generational trauma. My grandmother, when she served us dinner, it was impolite when you were offered food, you had to say no first. And then she offered it three times. And if you accepted it before the three times, it wasn't polite. Oh, that is a very interesting rule to have passed down in the family. And, 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 and I found that a little weird because when I'm hungry, I want to eat. Why do I have to say no three times? Yeah. It was yeah, just yeah. a rule. And then and, and she thought somebody came over as greedy if they accepted and said yes the first time, even if they were hungry and loved the food. Oh, that sounds like an amazing story to do a deep dive into. What did that mean? Where did that come from? Where did that core programming start? Yeah. that that it continued mm. yeah that that is really it, it's interesting how different families have their traditions that have different things i mean i didn't propagate it with my kids obviously because i didn't believe in it but it 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 it, it, I, it touched me funny when i was a child that was supposed to be the case yeah, I, I can see how that would be like this, this strange custom to come into, even though it's a custom you've bit you've had all your life, we have those. And then when we realize that other people, and, and again, other people are not usually the, the basis for comparison, other people have different customs, and you're like, this no longer resonates with me. No wonder I've always felt weird. Mm. Right? And I like how you say it, other people should never be a measure for comparison. And that's very true. They are a possibility to consider and then make your own decision. I love that attitude that you have. Yeah. So, so tell me about a family tradition that you have seen in one of your clients that maybe even caused generational trauma or something else that you identified as generational trauma. Oh, I mean, there's, there are so many that we, we just start looking at. We have limited beliefs with roles that women play in the home and in the workplace and with child rearing and how many children to have, when to have them, right? You know, we have families that we work with quite frequently where childbearing starts 
late teens. And if you hit 20 and haven't had a child yet, they're really shocked because this is the environment that you grow up in. You just start having kids at 16. That's just how it's done. Wow. Yeah. We have money, money problems, money blocks. We have, we have generational poverty and generational scarcity with money because we forgot that first part of the sentence, the love of money is the root of evil, right? So we've translated that into money is evil. So we, we have clients that I'm working with. Well, I have clients that I'm working with where they make enough money that they can afford the niceties of things that they want in life. And they still live they, they still live outside of their means and they still can't afford the basic necessities and are one car payment away from, you know, not having it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of things going on that are very sad. Now, what else do say missing or defective boundaries cause for problems? Oh, I mean, Ultimately, when we get down to it, you know, we, we, we can start out here and the ripple effect comes in here and then it hits the core person and then it just ripples right back out. And so we just have this ripple effect that just keeps rebounding in on itself and then out. The inability to say no, the inability to say no at the right times and the right places to the correct people, the inability to the inability to say yes, right? Because it's, all, it's not always no. A lot of times it's being able to say yes to people on your terms. That was not, that was not a, a value that was passed down. And then, you know, boundaries. I'm working with one client who inserts herself into everybody else's life. Mm because that's what she was taught as a child. Insert yourself into everybody else's goings on so that you can take care of everybody else because I can't take care of things here at home. You have to. Mm. Yeah. That, that is, yeah. If you take on other people's burdens, it will lead to fast burnout. Mm -hmm. Any healthcare professional will uh, either learn or experience it. Very quickly. Sometimes oh, yes. Absolutely. And another thing, I noticed in your bio that you talk about being a very judgmental, non-judgmental person. What do you mean by that? Oh my gosh. So this is this is part of that fun, right? Because two things can be true at the same time, right? Sometimes when they do not seem like they would be true at all. I I've learned to embrace being a judgmental person because I am, I am just really judgy and, and fighting that for so many years. Right. So I started life as well. I started life obviously as a child and, and then, you know, as a teenager decided I wanted to be a social worker. Well, social workers usually aren't very judgy. Oh no. I had a whole shirt ton of judgments, right? Like, oh, you're not doing that right. You're not doing that right. Well, it was because from the inside, I wasn't doing it right either. Right. So I super judgmental and it really came out with the clients that I was working with. And 
there were a few times where the talking tos didn't sink in very well. And then, then I went through a breakthrough and going through that breakthrough helped me understand that being judgmental to everybody else, of course, obviously this was the person I was being judgmental of the most. So now, now I understand I like, it is now such a core thing. Oh, really? That's what non-judgmental means. It means holding the space, helping them to judge in the sense of like, you're helping them keep score, uh, like, like an ice skating judge, right? That's the kind of judging. Are you comparing yourself against how you were yesterday? And what are the measurements that we're going to hold the accountability and the respect for tomorrow that we can measure against moving forward? Mm. So I'm non-judgmental now with whatever it is that you are doing. Of course, you're going to do it that way. You have no other way but to do it that way. Because that's the way you've been taught. That's the way you've learned. That's the way that you've navigated and you've managed to get your needs met by doing it that way. Of course, you're going to do it that way. And I cannot hold any emotional attachment to that, which means I release the emotional attachment to myself that had a negative judgment for somebody else doing the very things that I could have, would have, should have, and probably did do. So true, so true. And I noticed that as a physician myself, and I worked as a physician, and even later in life, I always knew what was best for somebody else. Always. <laughs> 100%. Mm -hmm. And when you become a healer, you allow others and maybe the universe to heal themselves, or do you facilitate it and do a guide more than somebody that tells them how it should be done? Yes. Well, and, and I've also learned through the years with, you know, learning about how judgy I was and, and how a negative space that was coming from. I'm totally judgy now. I'm totally judgmental. I mean, my job requires me to do that. Right. And <laughs> my judgment now is like, listen, <laughs> your insurance requires me to judge you and give you a diagnosis. So this is what I'm doing. Otherwise, my judgment was coming from a place of do it as I tell you to do it because this is the right way to get it done. Oh, my Lanta, no. How do you want to get it done? How can I help you take the steps that you already know you're ready to take? You just aren't able to see the step right in front of you. So I'm going to help you figure out where those blinders are. We're going to take the post-it notes off your eyeballs and, oh, look, there's the stairs. How you want to go? That's a good one because most people know what they should do, but they just can't get it done or they can, they have some blocks that, that prevent them from actually doing the things. Yes. And who is the number one person that we lie to the most? Of course, ourselves. <laughs> yes. We know that now. Right? Yeah. I ask my clients that the very first, the session where we get to start diving into their, their, their pile of poop, right? Who is the person you lie to the most? And they start naming names. And I'm like, great, good to know that you've got some whoppers out there. 
and then <laughs> um, because I believe perception is projection, I hold up my little mirror. Excellent. And and I've got that in person and uh, for video too. And they go, no, they literally it flies their brain that I'm the person that I lie to the most. How many times you tell yourself you're going to get up at 6 a.m. and then you hit the snooze button five times? Mm hmm. Now tell me how many times you've lied to yourself or you've fibbed to yourself before you even brushed your teeth. Right. Mind blown. You know, there's a wonderful example in, in a book I read about uh, medical students. They're the worst to lie to themselves. And they were asked by a professor who here in the room considers himself to be in the top 50% of their class and 90% raised their hands. I love it. I love it. A classic example how people and I probably do it to lie to themselves and how we always have to be critical. And I really enjoy your, your mentioning that. Yeah, I mean, because, I mean, I knew that, right? Like I knew that it was way back here that I knew that because I lie to myself, you know, I lie to myself much less now than I did two, two and a half years ago, right? Now I get, so I used to say, I get brutally honest with people. And then I read something that said, you know, if you really want to be brutally honest with people, it's not that you want to be honest, it's that you want to be brutal. And I was like, no, yes, right? Because that was coming from a place of hurt. And I did not realize how hurt I was in those spaces. Now I want to get blatantly honest with you and you you, me, my clients, I want to get blatantly honest with you. And to get blatantly honest with people, you got to realize, you know what? Yep, I, I still fib to myself on a daily basis as well. Mm -hmm. I work hard to check where those limited beliefs are coming from and where those limited decisions are happening. And I make sure to share that with somebody else. Because am I, am I just fibbing to myself again when I go, mm, yeah, it's really because of this excuse? Or is it still six layers deep? Mm. Excuses are always good, aren't they? Oh, perfect. I can. My, my husband always points out, what's that for an excuse? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm a yeah, master. I'm a master in excuses when it comes to my husband. He knows. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, heck yeah. <laughs> hey, why not? I love Wayne Dyer's book, Excuses Be Gone. <laughs> Oh, that's a nice book. Excuses be gone. Yeah, yeah. He, he wrote a few nice books. And uh, now let me ask you, what is your favorite book? The one that I'm currently reading at the time. Oh, wow. Which changes every time I'm reading a book. Well, of course. And I love that, that you say it changes. Yes. Because people always say, oh, there's two things in life that are sure death and taxes, but it's not true. The only thing that's really sure is change. Well, death is sure too, but, but taxes are not. You can go to jail and avoid paying taxes. But <laughs> well, I, I like to I like to talk with my clients. I have a funny little saying, and I got it from a movie like 20, 30 years ago. You know, those two things that are sure in life, death and taxes, and even God negotiates. 
Ah, neben Rodney Rochelt. I like that. The IRS won't. <laughs> ah, the IRS won't. They put you in jail. Yeah. Yeah, right? There's so, consequences. Yeah, so my favorite book changes when I'm reading a new book. My favorite genre of book will never change. And of course, it's going to be the sci-fi fiction, sci-fi fantasy era. Because let's face it, I'm a social worker, former social worker and a therapist. I don't really need to read too many books on reality. Okay. <laughs> we get a disconnect as well, right? So uh, the book club and I are reading the 12 week year right now. Oh yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I've read about productivity. Yeah. Productivity and so in neuro-linguistic programming, we have four main, and th this does actually have a point to it. So in neuro-linguistic programming, we have four main representational styles, vision, auditory, kinesthetic, which means emotions and physical feelings, and then auditory digital. Auditory digital are people who hear, see, feel the world, and then we think. We are the thinkers. We are overthinking everything. And depending on how strong our visual skills are, visual skills being able to see into the future, being able to imagine or picture, you know, kind of the arts, right? Depending on how, how good that is, depends on how far into the future we can see. What's our five-year plan? What's our three-year plan? What's our one-year plan? I'm not a very visual person in that aspect. So, so when every, you know, like for the last five or so years, they're like, what's your 10 year plan in 10 years? Where do you want to be? And I'm all like, well, I can see that I want to be super rich and that I want to be really successful. I mean, doesn't everybody? Okay, I don't want to be super rich. I want to have a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, my version of super rich is like, I don't know, 150, 250 a year. That, I mean, in my area, that's actually pretty decent salary. Yeah, absolutely is. And they're like, great, how are you going to get there? Dude, I can barely see for the next six months. What do you want me to, you want me to go 10 years into the future? How do I go one year, two year, five years, 10 years? Hmm. So the 12 week year that I'm reading right now is, is really helpful for reminding those of us who have never been introduced to this, right? There's no need. You know, if you want a 10-year goal, great. Toss it out there on the wall and occasionally you'll get an idea. You'll get the visual. You'll Somebody will help you uncover those limited decisions and remove those post-it notes from your eyeballs so that you can see a path to start getting there. Yeah, I like that because many people, they, they know, I, I know the general direction and then it's important to take the first step and then the steps will reveal themselves from there. Yes. Absolutely yeah. true. So Tonya, uh, uh, to wrap this up, uh, what would be a good way if somebody sees you and say, hey, that woman is refreshingly honest and not nice and judgmental. I want her to judge me and be kind with me. How can they contact you? Where can they find you? Oh, really super easy. Um, yes, I will be happy to put my phone number out there for the world. 
yes, I should have played the lottery that day, right? Um, you can reach me at our website, gatewaybehavioralhealthconsultants.com, or you can find me on Psychology Today. My favorite place to hang out is Facebook. So I'm on there quite frequently. You can look for the Dynamite Coach STL. I'm right there. Okay, awesome. And I will put your website underneath that video so that everybody finds it easily and the links will be underneath the video and the description. Thank you so much, Tonya, for being on the show. It was a pleasure to talk Thank with you. Thank you so uh, much for Robin. having me. Thank you so much. And uh, this wraps up this episode of Sparkles for Better Mental Health. And make sure to tune in for the next episode. Thank you. Bye-bye.